good thing. I got a lot of stuff here in front of me. I'm trying to organize it and talk to it at the same time and trying to figure out what it is I'm going to say here. Okay, well, what we're going to do today is open up our Bibles. Duh, right? You know this, right? And now we're going to, we're going to go into Romans chapter 2. Now, if you've been, you know, around when I'm here, I've been going through the book of Romans and went through chapter 1. Did, verse, did all the verses in Romans chapter 1. So now we're going to go, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 2, and you say, well, how long are you going to be doing this in Rome? I don't know. I, I don't know. As the Lord leads me is what I'll do. So today we're going to be looking into Romans chapter 2, and just for just general information, you know, Romans chapter 2 is comprised of 697 words. And um, so we're going to be looking at only 22 of those words, 22 of those Greek words. Actually, Romans chapter 2, verse 1, it's comprised of 27 English words and 22 Greek words. So therefore, of the 697 words in chapter 2, we're just going to look at 27 of them today. And we're looking here into chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. And in verse number 1, and I shall read this and then hope to make some intelligent comments on it. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are that judges. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge, you do the same things. Let's pray over this. Lord, this is, we understand this to be the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. The only thing that I can do is to mess this thing up. So please, I ask, get me out of the way. May the remarks that I make be of the Spirit of God according to the truth of this verse. And then I pray that the Spirit of God will take these truths and apply them to our heart today. It may be that someone came in here today discouraged, defeated. Maybe it was a bad week, a difficult time. But we pray that the Holy Spirit will take these words and apply it to that heart that's discouraged today and give them encouragement so that when we depart from here, they'll have real joy in their heart. Is it possible that there's someone here today not born again, not saved by the power and the blood of the Lord Jesus? Then we would pray as a result of this gathering, this may be the time that you would be pleased to draw them irresistibly unto yourself that they would depart from here, people of faith and in love with you. And then, Lord, we're, in other words, we're asking for you to do, the mir- do a miracle here in the, each of our hearts, whatever we need. We all need something different. We are citizens of your kingdom, and we all have different desires. We're all in a different state of growth. We all have different sins with which we struggle. Minister to us today, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, chapter 2, verse 1, again. Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are that judges. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge do the same things. Now, in this text, four things, I want to give you some four thoughts ahead of time to sort of set this up. Number one is this. As we all know, in order to understand chapter 2, 
we must review some theological concepts of chapter 1. Now, if you recall, that's what I've been doing the last year and coming here. We went through Romans chapter 1, so I'm going to assume you're somewhat familiar with the content of chapter 1 because we're going to build on that in chapter 2. Second thing I want to say is this. Bear in mind, individual man is guilty before a holy God. You understand that basic premise. Mankind were guilty before God. Now, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are delivered and from hell to heaven, but nonetheless, we stand, mankind in general stands guilty before a holy God. Why? Because God's standards are perfection. Did you know that? God's standard is absolute perfection. None of us can meet that. That's why Christ had to go to the cross. Thirdly, just keep in mind, Israel. Let's talk about Israel for a moment, because Israel comes to play in in Romans chapter 2. Israel is guilty before God. As a nation, they are guilty. And today, to this day, they're still guilty before God as a nation. And when we talk about Israel, it's good to understand that there are actually two Israels. There's the Israel that's in the land, in the holy lands, that generally speaking are in rebellion to God. Now, there's many exceptions to that, but generally speaking, that's the... But then also, there is spiritual Israel. You know who spiritual Israel is? For example, Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, refers to the Israel of God. And if you look at that in the setting, it's talking about what's called spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel is you. <laughs> we, are, we, we comprise the believers. The believing community comprises what is referred to as spiritual Israel. And then the last um, thought I want to give you before we actually get into this verse. Issues of predestination play a major role in the history of redemption. And you're going to see that play out here today. It plays a major role in the history of redemption. By the way, the word predestination is used uh, four times in the book of Romans. And so we'll see that come up from time to time. There, and then bear in mind that there are two results. I know I'm giving you a lot. Actually, what I'm doing, I'm teaching to you like I, used, I taught in Bible college. And sort of, this is not really a sermon. I'm something like I would teach in a Bible college. I'm dumping a lot of information on you quickly. But that's okay. You can handle it. Or, what, you know, it's a good idea, too. When you come to church, have, take, take notes. You know, I hope you're taking notes. Because the most information, most significant information you're going to get about life, about the Bible, is... Write it down. <laughs> you can take it home and analyze it. The point is this. Um, there are two results of God's predestination. The, and and um, here it is. There is the doctrine of predestination unto salvation, which is labeled the doctrine of election. You see that word election in Scripture numerous times. And that means, what, what, what does election mean? In the context of the Bible, it means that God elected unworthy sinners to save from hell to heaven before the foundation of the world. And the second st- statement I would make concerning this, that secondly, there is a doctrine of predestination unto damnation which is called the doctrine of reprobation. And you've seen the word reprobate in Scripture. Reprobation. And that's what I'm going to share with you today. Why, why is that? Because that's what the text has. 
I don't decide what to preach. The Bible decides what to preach. And you'll see, you'll see the issues of, in the word, reprobation or reprobate. And this is our concern today, the doctrine of reprobation. So that when you go home today and somebody, I bet you didn't pay attention in church today, what did the pastor preach on? Rep, the, doc, the pastor preached on the doctrine of reprobation. And you'll see it's a very significant, under, to understand, very sig- significant doctrine. Again, um, for clarity's sake, let me give you a definition of, a clear definition of reprobation or the reprobate, and it is this. Reprobate is a term referring to the sinner who is not called, elected, or predestined unto eternal life. It's the person who is left out from all of this. In short, God did not interfere with their sinning, their perverted thinking, or depraved activities. And that's the reprobate. So you'll see people carry on crazy in the world. What is that? I can't say it's a reprobate. But they act like a reprobate. You see, you don't know who the reprobate is. Because a person is an unbeliever, which is a reprobate, but he could get saved an hour before he dies. (laughs) You know, therefore he's not a reprobate. So you really don't know who the reprobate is, other than there are people who are not saved and carry on. Now, is God going to save them? We don't know. So do you understand that? In the, the final term of reprobate means it's an unbeliever who never gets saved. But you don't know who that is. Because again, people who you think aren't going to get saved may get saved just before they die. So we really don't know who it is other than by definition. There are people who live in this world who do not get saved. They're not going to get saved. That's the reprobate. And we'll, we'll talk more about it, I hope, which will give more clarity as we go on. And in short, God simply left the reprobate to themselves. He did not interfere with their debauchery, their fun, their lifestyle. And often that's why you see today the wicked prosper. Did you ever have that go through your mind? Why is it that it appears that the wicked prosper? And that's a question asked often in Scripture. And um, why does this occur? Well, because God permits the reprobate to continue on under his permission. However, we know this too, that in the end, they will receive pure and absolute justice. They carry on today and can create all kinds of problems. But in the end, when they have to stand before the Lord, then it'll be a total different story. And again, again, to stress, we don't know who the reprobate is. You don't know till if a person is, is un, in unbelief and he dies in unbelief, that was a reprobate. But you don't know because, you, you know, you don't know because someone who's a great sinner, they may come to Christ at the last hour of their life. Well, that's not a reprobate. The reprobate is someone who is unsaved, remains unsaved, and dies in a state of un, un, unbelief. Again, reprobation is a term for those who never come to Christ, but die in their unbelief, and of course, unfortunately, plunge into hell. When you and I were saved, we were saved out of a state of reprobation. Everybody who was, sa- who was saved at one time was a reprobate, and they're, they're saved out of that stage of unbelief. 
Which brings us then to our context today of Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. And we find this, that God gave mankind over to, to being a reprobate, and that's the context. Romans 1.28 makes that statement, God gave man over to reprobation. He took his hands off of them. If you don't want me, okay, I won't force myself on you. But you continue in your life of being a reprobate. The, res- the result of this, the result of the reprobate or reprobation is listed in Romans 1, 29 through 31. And this is what the reprobate produces, all this list of sins and, and confusion. And hence we see that the reprobate takes pleasure in his sin. Verse Chapter 1, verse 32. And you know what? He doesn't know any better. That's his lifestyle. He is a slave to his depraved, fallen nature. But isn't it wonderful? God, and you were that way, and I was that way prior to conversion. But isn't it wonderful God didn't let you stay that way? He called you out of that mess by a powerful calling. And so that's why you're here today, and that's why you love the Lord. He did, not, he, did not leave, he did not take his hands off you and just leave you in your misery, but loved you so much to send his only begotten son for you and for me to rescue us out of our misery. The, rep, the, the, the reprobate, he is a slave to his own depraved, fallen nature. And the only difference between the reprobate And the saint is God's election of grace upon the undeserving sinner. And we're going to see then, having proved that none are just before God, in Romans chapter 1, that's a major theme in Romans 1, nobody is right before God. That's the deplorable condition the human race is in, as defined in Romans chapter 1. All are guilty before a holy God. We find, though, that in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul now goes on to connect the next thought by the use of the word, therefore. You see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, therefore. And that word, therefore, is a common biblical connector. And it's used, by the way, it's used 1,220 times in Scripture, connecting one thought to another. Blah, blah, blah is true, Therefore, blah, blah, blah happens. And that connecting there is that word, therefore, which Scripture uses quite often. As we move on, we've already established about Romans chapter 1, God gave the pagan over to a reprobate mind. Number two, the sinner will persist in the state of reprobation if left to himself, if there's no interruption In other words, the sinner cannot help himself. And it is an expression of his very nature. He cannot change himself. And I think of, as I was writing these remarks down, what comes into my mind is a picture of an English Springer Spaniel dog, which was mine when I was like junior high school or around that age. And the dog's name was Pokey. And Pokey was an absolute glutton. This dog, would, you'd feed it, and, and you get the ball. And by the way, now, dog food's different today than it was back. This is, you're going back in there, 60, early 60s and so forth. But 
And you know, back then, they used to give you dog food in a can. And you opened up that can, and I'm telling you, <laughs> that dog food smelled so good. <laughs> and once in a while, I'd feed them, if nobody's looking, I've, I've eaten the dog food. Because <laughs> it had this aroma about it that actually made you hungry. But this dog, anyway, getting back to Pug, he would feed him, and his face would go down into that bar, and would never come up until that bowl totally licked. And then, and then he started hunting around for something else, a complete glutton of a creature he was. Um, but, you know, he didn't, you know, he didn't realize his condition, his state, but that's just the way he was. But that's what a sinner is with sin. They, 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 they gluttonize over it, just like my dog Pokey did, and they cannot help their condition. That's just the state of an unbeliever. And by the way, along these lines, think about Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. Probably nobody here has that memorized. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. But it says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or can the leopard his spots? And basically what it's saying in the context, a sinner sins because that's what he is. He's a sinner. It's his nature. And that's why he carries on the way he does. And the only escape from this is conversion in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reprobate, that is again the one who is not saved, the one who does not get saved, has a depraved mind that chooses to live in denial. He's overwhelmed by his lust for sin. And he has no desire to be converted to God's salvation while he is in that state. Hence, the reprobate is to, if, if the reprobate is to be saved, he must be rescued from his sinful nature. And this is the work of, work of the work of the cross. This is the work of salvation. And that's when you're handing out tracts. You want to hand them out, pray, and share Christ. And hopefully, if it's, of course, he's a reprobate in unbelief. And actually taking the definition strictly, which that's what you want to do, the truth is, I, I made a little confusing statement. If you're talking to a reprobate, he's not going to get saved. We know that. But you don't know if you're talking about a reprobate. Just give him the word of God, and we know the Lord may save him. In which case, not a reprobate. Do you understand that? I, mean, I think I made that confusing. <clears throat> the reprobate is a person who's never going to get saved. So we're not praying, Lord, save the reprobate, because a reprobate's not going to get saved. There are people who act like a reprobate. But they're not reprobate. Those are ones who will get saved. You were a reprobate. I was a reprobate, reprobate like. But the Lord saved us out of this. But the pure reprobate is one who lives, hears the gospel, carries on, and dies in his, in his unbelief. That's the problem of the reprobate. Continuing on, what's the answer to this? Let's look. Luke nineteen ten tells us what. The Son of Man is come to save and to seek that which was lost. Who will be rescued? That is part of God's elect. God will take the elect out of this, acting like a reprobate, and take them out of this and set them upon the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there we have the lust. You have here in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which was lost. The lost is reprobate-like. If they're reprobate, they will not get saved. But they're reprobate-like. If they do come to Christ, do they behave like a reprobate until the time the Lord actually saved us, saved them? 
At salvation, we know that the Holy Spirit gives the reprobate the desire and the power to reject and to depart from his former life of dominating sin. Hence, you have the, the, the work of John 3.16. We all know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, if you want to apply it to this. But if the reprobate believes, but again, looking at the strict definition of a reprobate, a person can be reprobate-like and come to Christ and he's, he's saved. But the pure reprobate will not believe in Christ. He's, he's going to reject Christ and plunge into hell. Again, we don't know who that reprobate is. We know people who are reprobate-like, but they will get saved. But the pure reprobate, we don't know who they are until they die. And if they die in unbelief, then that was a reprobate. I'm confusing this. I know I'm trying to make this clear to you. And the more I try and make this clear, I think the more confusing I'm making you. Let me see if I can salvage this, continue on here and see what we can, what we can, what we can say about this. Now here's, here's, I just, I got the perfect example, answer for this, this problem that I just created and not being clear. I got the, I got the answer. Ta-da! I didn't know I was going to need this. Here's a book that I would represent, rep, rep, that I would suggest if you're good into studying theology. This is a great. It's clear, but it's deep, and it talks about the reprobate, and actually does it much clearer than what I'm doing today. And it's called the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Botner. Anybody read anything by Lorraine Botner? Has anybody heard of Lorraine Botner? Now you think Lorraine Lorraine Botner, what do you pick you picture a woman? Lorraine Botner. But do you know what? This is a man and his name's Lorraine. I don't understand that, but anyway. But he wrote a good book. A very clear book, understanding predestination for knowledge, election, and all those things that we find confusing, try to understand it. He writes it, he does a good job in putting this together. And so you'll probably get this online. If anybody really desperate and wants it, you can have my copy if you want it, but I try to hold on to it so I can use it for you know, examples for other people. But it really, it really helped me to understand a lot because when I started out in theology, I was an Arminian in my thinking. And gradually, in, in, as a result of studying Scripture, studying Scripture and being loyal to Scripture, I came, across, you know, came onto the Reformed understanding of, of theology. But this was a great help. As a matter of fact, a pastor, who, a pastor gave me this book many years ago, Dr. Ernie Reisinger. Did everybody hear Ernie Reisinger? He was a great leader in the reform camp, oh, back probably in the 70s or 80s. Uh, out in, he was out in western Pennsylvania. I, don't, I forget how he met, ran, out, ran into him and met him, but we became good friends, and he began to teach me some of these things, and it was a, you know, it's a wonderful thing. So always have, and here's the lesson, Always have good theology books around and give them. Give them away. Give them to people. And um, this is how you, know, you learn and how, and how people grow in their faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, belief, reception of Christ is something which comes upon the unworthy sinner. It is not something that you earn or entertain. Did you realize that? Um, what could I use for an example? How about a yawn? Now, when I say the word yawn, you're going to want to yawn in a minute or so. You're trying to hold it back because you have because I because I gave the suggestion to whatever you do, don't yawn. 
Now you're going to have an urge you want, you're going to want to yawn. But you know, a yawn, when you think it, it comes upon you, right? You don't think, oh, I want to yawn. It comes on. But that's what saving faith is. Saving faith is what God gives you. It's not something you earn. It's not something you can muster up. It's not, well, boy, if I read enough theology books, I'll have saving faith. No. Saving faith to trust in Christ, that's a gift that God gives to you. And if you do not, if he doesn't give it to you, you won't have it. What you will be is a religious person, but you won't have the real thing. That's genuine faith is what the Lord Jesus Christ gives to you. And so that's what, again, this book will make that very clear to you. It's something given to the sinner. The next thing we see in our text is an accusation by God aimed at mankind. And what is it? Well, if I were to give this to you, anapologotos eoanthropotis, or thou art inexcusable. That's the next phrase you see in the text that we're looking at. As you look at these texts, you want to take them word by word, phrase by phrase, and dig into them and get them. So now we're looking at the phrase, thou art inexcusable. Notice the the clarity and the bluntness of Scripture. God just lays it out. Many times people say, well, I don't read the Bible. It's too hard to understand. You get the old King James language and you get all this. But that's really just a, a, a front. Much of it is very simple to understand and very clear and very repetitive. As you get into God's Word, it goes over and over the same things many times. Actually, it was John Calvin who said that the natural man could not offer any defense for their conduct. They're in such a state that they can offer before God a defense for their behavior, which is so out of line. Hence, man's condition in this text is called what? Inexcusable. You are inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are. But let's talk about that word inexcusable. That is fallen man. He has no excuse for his unbelief. But yet if you talk to fallen man, they think, the unbeliever, he thinks, well, I don't believe in the God, but if there is a God, I'll explain it and he'll understand and blah, blah. That's, that's how they think. But what we're finding out is, what the teaching is here, you are inexcusable. You have no excuse. If you stand before God, stand before, live on this planet and stand before God, you live and carry on and die in unbelief, you will stand before God to give an account. And, that, and, and, and Scripture is saying that person is inexcusable. He has no excuse. He thinks he has one while he's on this earth and he's going to manufacture some excuse But scripture is making it clear, you are inexcusable, O man. And notice the next phrase, whosoever you are. You know, there are those who think they're clever and they can talk their way out of things and do this and do that, but scripture is saying no excuse. You have no excuse, whosoever you are. There are no excuses before because of your unbelief. And that means that there's no excuse whether you be a Jew or a Gentile. See, the Jew's going to say, you know, the Jew's going to say, I'm Jew, I'm Jewish flesh. <laughs> I, I got a pass, I'm a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. We're set. But the scripture tells us there's no excuse for the Jew or the Gentile, for the black or, or white, for the educated or the ignorant, for the male or for the female, for the homosexual or for the straight, for the rich or for the poor. These are all different categories people put themselves in and they think they're going to have some kind of a special, escape, a special pass. And Scripture's making it clear, there are no special classes, passes. You either are in Christ, 
and have your sins forgiven and you have a home in heaven or you're not in Christ. And so mankind constantly has this argument taking place. And so we find then and the result of all these that unsaved mankind is guilty before a holy God and therefore what's left? The only thing that's left is hell. And I hate, you know, sometimes we joke about it and laugh about it, but we shouldn't. Think about hell for just a moment. Basically, it's a place of complete separation from God. Now, it's described as fire and so forth, and I don't know, I can't, I can't get into it any deeper than what, what Scripture says. But I do know it's very making it clear that you, if you think life is difficult now, Think of what it's going to be like if you have a complete and total separation from God. Even the most vile person on this earth has blessings of God. He has nice weather. He has plenty of food. He has water. But those who do not know Christ and they go into eternity is going to be a very difficult thing, a very difficult thing. Let me move on unless I get stuck here. I want to try and get this, cover this before we go. Because I see you're getting tired, therefore i got to do something to keep you awake. And therefore, you can hear the message. Okay, so let me move on very quickly here. Look at the next phrase. Therefore, you are inexcusable what? You that judge. You see that word? He that judges. That's the word krino. Krino in, in the Greek language means like to judge. But actually, let me, I have some definitions for krino. I'm going to give you in just a minute. But notice, notice in this context, the sin, the problem, it is not. It's not talking about murder. Adultery, thievery, blasphemy, apostasy. It's not talking about this. It's talking about simply judging, judging others. And you know, that's probably something some of us may have something, may struggle with that from time to time. You may be prejudiced against a person, or you may be judgment, judgmental for this or for that. And that's what this is about. This text today is about judgmentalness. And we tend not to look at that. That's not as bad as murder. That's not as bad as taking the Lord's name in vain. But I don't know. Scripture puts it on the same plane. Being judgmental. This is a deadly sin. And probably to a greater or lesser extent, we're all guilty of it. I'm sure sometimes you judge someone improperly. I know I have. So this is speaking to me. Something which... Again, I, I, mean, I don't have to worry about thievery or murder and that kind of thing, but this, yeah, this is speaking to me. And um, it's a destructive habit with deadly consequences and leads to wrong thinking and actions. And this is the word, again, crino. Now, just let me give you this for a little theological, to, to whet your appetite for some of you who may be thinking about wanting to go to seminary. I say it because I did that years ago. You know, I didn't go to seminary like till I was about 35 or something strange like that. Because the Lord had to do a lot of work in me. <laughs> I was really a mess. But anyway, but, but but you know, if you like go to a seminary and get into the Greek language, it can help you out if you can if you can deal with the Greek. I had a hard time dealing with it. I'm not a especially smart person, but I but I do stick to, to things, work at it, and you know, I was able to get something done. But anyway, just for your own interest, that word uh, that we're looking in here today. The word judging or being judgment. If you go back to your to your Bible text, there it is. The word crino, spelled in English, K-R-I-N-O. But here are all the definitions of crino: to distinguish, to pick out, to make an assessment, 
to reject, to approve, to esteem, and to be of the opinion. So how in the world are you going to apply that? You apply it by looking at the context. The context will give you the definition of the word. That's true in English, too, in many cases. How does the word have any definition to it? The context gives it to it, to us. What we're going to find here in this text today, Paul repeats himself to underline the point, thou judgest another. You see that phrase twice in this text. He uses that word judgment because that is the offense against the people to whom he is speaking. You're judgmental. You're supposed to be a Christian and you're judgmental. You're judging people all the time. And you know, how do you, do you you enjoy being around people who you sense are judgmental? (laughs) Don't you sort of feel guilty because I know this guy's judging me over here or this lady over here. And, you know, you don't want to be that way. And the best way to break that habit, look in the mirror. (laughs) And that will keep it from from being judgmental uh, to people. But here we're looking at this phrase here, thou judgest another. And um, it's something that you don't want to be part of this. But yet, you know, it's something that we all do struggle with. And sometimes... um, you know, we, we're not perfect, and, and you get these thoughts in your head about he said or she said, and it sticks with you, and you want to cast that out. If you have this judgmental, and you're prejudiced against a person or a statement, or you have this hard feeling towards someone, and you know what's in there, you want to identify it as you do for all trick, all trick, uh, say it, <laughs> try to say it. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, right? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think about that power. To confess your sin, if you have this problem, confess it before God. When we condemn others, what do we do? Our text tells us what? We condemn ourselves. Think about that. Why he said this. You know what you're doing? Condemning yourself. Really, As you get in to analyze this. The complainer is often guilty of the very same thing of which he complains. And therefore, to some greater or lesser degree, all of us struggle with a degree of hypocrisy. I judge that person, but you know what? In in, in practice, I probably do it myself, maybe in a little different manner. And so that's why you don't want to be judging other people. And, um, you know, it's something that you, you want to get out of, something that we naturally cling to. Uh, but we don't want to be this way. You know, I had a good friend, Magnus. Magnus, I'll close with telling you a story about Magnus here. Uh, Magnus was from Latvia. And he moved in the neighborhood across the street from me um, when we were like about third grade. And he couldn't, had a hard time speaking English, but we would go to this, we walked to the same grade school. I walked on one side of Westchester Pike. He walked on the other side, and we we'd walked to the school. We're looking at each other across across the way. And lo and behold, we get to school, and we're in the same class. And for whatever reason, I didn't like Magnus. You know, I, I don't know why. He's a nice guy. I I just didn't like him. So we, we when we go home, I'd be on this side of the road. He'd be on that side of the road. <laughs> and Karen, and he was very poor, dirt poor. You know, he lived with his grandmother, aunt, and a cousin. And that's all there was. 
And we eventually, I got to know him. We became friends, and I actually had to take food over there to feed them because they were that they were that desperate. You know, back then, this is now this is back late fifties. And so you didn't have all these programs that we have today. If you didn't have food in the late fifties, you'd starve. So we would we would uh, you know, try to help them out. But the point, what I'm point I'm trying to make here in a roundabout way. When I did, I did not like Magnus at first. Again, he was just annoying or whatever. But the more I got to, I went out of my way to get to know him, to talk to him, and actually start bringing food over to his house, and that kind of, we became friends. We became best of friends, and therefore we became inseparable. To the point where, when we were in eighth grade, we're there to, and of course I'm sitting here, and Magnus is right next to me, right, we're carrying on. So the teacher had to separate us, you know. Donnie Britton, get out of here. Go to that class over there and Magnus over here. And, because we became so close together. By the way, today Magnus is a doc, medical doctor. Now, he may be retired by now. I haven't talked with him for years, but he went on to be you know, a very, very professional person, a doctor. And um, so that's what happened to Mag. But, the, but um, the whole point is you don't want to be judgmental and... Um, so I'm, and I'm, I'll just close with that remark and simply say this. When I say the word being judgmental, what do you think of? Is there someone in your life who you're judgmental with? And really the reason you're judgmental is not the issue. The problem is you just don't like the person. Now it may be your fault, it may be their fault, but you've got that thing you're dealing with. And you know what? You need to get that out of your life because it'll hinder your witness, it'll hurt your com- communication with the Lord. You want to learn how to love, as they say, love everyone. Learn how to love. That's a Christian duty, to love those. And you know, to learn to love the unlovely. We love, you know, people who are nice to us, people who are friendly and all that. Oh, yeah, I love you, brother. How you doing? Good. But how about the unlovely? What about the person who annoys you? Or the person that's just not popular, or they just have habits that are annoying? You know, you need to learn to reach out to them and to love, give them love. Because if you don't do it, the other guys aren't going to do it. And this opens up a great opportunity to witness. Make them your friend. What do you do with your enemies? Make them your friend. What do you do with people who annoy you? Make them your friend. And then begin to share the Lord Jesus Christ with them. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to say thank you for your word. Thank you for letting us be here today to analyze your word. And Lord, some things here I'm aware right now I did not make very clear, but I know you can change it. You're, the Spirit of God can rearrange all this and make it clear and make it a blessing to the congregation here today. And oh Lord, above all, may we learn not to be judgmental. Realizing we have our own faults, realizing we annoy people that we are not even aware of. Help us to get that out of our personality so that we can be the best witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to pray right now, Lord, that you would give a healing to anyone who may be in the congregation today who has this problem of being judgmental. And if you, you know it. If you have it, you know it. Make them aware of it. Give them repentance that they may come right now and confess it to you. Yes, Lord, forgive me. I am a judgmental person. Please forgive me. I'm too judgmental with my wife. 
I'm too judgmental with my husband, with my children, with my neighbor. Help us to put that behind us and to learn to show the love of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit of God. Father, do a great work in our life that we cannot do ourselves, but you can through your power in our life. Thank you for bringing us together. And we thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.